All right. I guess uh, small children? Nope. No small children. They are all in nursery. Uh, so everyone else, you're stuck. Sorry. I'm not going to give you an excuse to duck out in mass. Uh, so uh, let's pray in uh, preparation for the message this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, pray that you be with us today. I pray that you would help us to um, just come to you in in everything that we do, Lord. In this in this time of worship, in this time of prayer, in this time of of uh, just being in your presence to know you more. I pray that uh, Heavenly Father, you would um, just be in me as I as I share the gospel. Help me to. Help me to be faithful. Help me to be focused. Help me to um, unpack the text and and demonstrate what it is that uh, you desire of us through your word. Um, Lord God, help me to, to share the gospel uh, faithfully. And I pray that you be with the folks who are here today, that they would hear the word, uh, hear your voice. They would encounter your spirit and that that spirit would find, um, you know, find soil that's, that's you know, rich and 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 ready to receive uh, the gospel, to receive the seeds that are are the gospel. Um, I pray, Lord God, that you would uh, help us to water those, water the word, water the, like, like the hearts of the people here through the word and through prayer and through everything that we do. Help us to be your uh, people in everything, Lord God. Uh, Amen. Oh, wow, it's like quarter to noon already. Uh, So... Uh, we're going to have to try and be on the on the job here, huh? Um, I am rereading right now uh, the book *The Silver Chair*. It's written by C.S. Lewis. It's uh, part of the the Narnia books. And there's this this moment in this book that I like. I read this this particular one. It's probably one of my least favorite, uh, though I'm appreciating it different this year. Uh, um, I, I last read it probably not long after college, or not long after I got married, but um, there's this moment in this story where uh, this little girl, Jill, I'm going to get my coffee, uh, this little girl named Jill, she has come to, to Narnia, and, and she is, like, it's her first time in this, in this strange land, and she's walking alone in the forest, and she's lost, and, and she's scared, and she's tired, and she's confused, and she doesn't know what's going on, and she's also just terribly thirsty, like dying of thirst. And she hears a, a, a river or like a, a stream. And the, the sound of the river is like intoxicating to her because she's so thirsty. And she wanders and looks and tries to find the stream and wanders closer and closer to it. And when she finally finds it, there is an enormous lion sitting next to the stream. And the lion, uh, the reader knows if they've read all the other books, the, the lion is Aslan, who is the Jesus character in the story. But the lion is sitting there watching her, and she freezes and watches this lion, terrified, because, I mean, honestly, if I encountered a lion, heck, I've encountered a skunk and frozen. Like, and a skunk wouldn't eat me, right? So she, she sees this lion, she freezes, and she's terrified, but she's so thirsty like, she's so desperate to drink that she doesn't want to walk away. And so she stands there for a very long time, frozen, staring at the water and staring at the lion. And finally, she, 
you know, I think the lion speaks to her first. And he says, hey, if you're thirsty, come over here and drink. And she says to him, well, if I come over there and drink, will you eat me? Will you promise not to eat me? And he says, you know what, I'm not going to make you any promises. I can tell you this is the best water you've ever drank. But I won't promise you anything. And she stood there frozen, trying to decide what to do, whether she was going to cross the clearing and, and drink and not die of thirst, um, but risk being eaten, or if she was going to like stand there or run away or whatever. Like She has this choice to make. And, and I'm starting with this because as I was um, sort of weighing the text for this week, which I'm going to read to you right out of the gate, um, and if you've got a Bible, you can find it. It is uh, Mark chapter 5. It's in the New Testament. Uh, there are Bibles in all the pews. If there isn't one, raise your hand and somebody will bring you one. Or look behind you. There's probably one on the pew behind you. Uh, I, just so you know, I have gotten into the habit of not putting the text on the screen because I want us to get into the habit of showing up carrying our Bibles. Okay? And I want us to get into the habit of looking at our Bibles and, like, ha- handling the Word ourselves. Um, and so, like, this is the thing I want us to do. And so, um, if you absolutely hate this, let me know. Because uh, everything I've heard so far has been, I like this better. Got it? So, um, obviously there's no lion in this particular story. But Jesus is in it, and it's the same character. So, well, not exactly. Anyway, one scripture, one C.S. Lewis. So, children's book. Um, chapter 5. And, and this picks up right after the calming of the storm. Right, and so they're all about to drown. There's this huge storm on the on the lake, and they're terrified, and they're taken on water, and they wake up Jesus, and Jesus stands up and commands the storm to stop. And then they they paddle to shore, and he says, "Well, why were you so afraid? Don't you have faith?" Um, and so they they and then the disciples are asking, "Who is this guy that even the sea obeys him? What's going on here?" And and so we're going to pick up there in chapter five, verse one. Uh, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of Gerasenes. Gerasenes. My Greek is horrible. I'm sorry. Uh, and, the, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles to pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of God? And, or excuse me, son of the most high God. And that's an important phrase, son of the most high God. Um, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was 
feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering 2,000, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been, uh, had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart their region. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he sent, or, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. Decapolis is one of my favorite weird Latin-y Greek words. Um, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marvelled. So this story, like there are books written on this story. Okay, I can't even begin to like pick this apart and do it justice. The way we're going to approach it um, is is in terms of what's going on in the larger text. Okay, because Mark included this, and there's all kinds of cool information and little clues about like supernatural stuff and everything else. But Mark included this story for a reason. And as you read the story in the context of what's happening in Mark, like you can find some really cool stuff. There's a deeper underlying message happening, and it's actually kind of awesome. Um, this is I'm not sure how far I'm going to go with this series at this point, like with Mark. Uh, I usually take the summer off and don't preach the Gospels. I preach the Old Testament. Uh, but I might even do something different than that. But um, this is the second incident in what uh, one pastor described to me as the adventures with Jesus. So you have these parables, and then you have Jesus going out with his disciples and doing stuff, little adventures, without a magic school bus. Um, and this is the second incident in this series Um, And a little background as we kind of get into it, if I can get my background slide up. I don't even know how long it's been up there. Um, So the parables. Uh, Real quick, the stuff that pertains to this. In chapter uh, 4, we have one of the parables uh, where it's not part of this set of parables that he taught, but it's where he is talking to the teachers of the law, and they say, hey, you cast out demons because you're possessed by Beelzebul. And the, the word there means the Lord of the manor. And that's significant, right? I don't think they knew how significant it was, but it plays into the last story, which we talked about last week, and this one. And it's kind of cool. Um, and Jesus like responds to this accusation. He's like, hey, how can I be possessed by Satan and use that possession to cast out demons? Then I'm fighting against my own guys. In reality, um, if Satan fights himself, if I cast out demons by the power of Satan, then... His kingdom is divided and it can't stand. He says, no, no one can rob a strong man unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can do whatever he wants. He can plunder the house. And so, like, in in that particular parable about, like, the binding of the strong man, Satan is the strong man and Jesus is the one who shows up and ties him up. Why? Because he's stronger and he can, right? Because, um, again, they said, Beelzebul, like you're possessed by Beelzebul, the lord of the manor. And he says, no, 
I tied up the Lord of the Manor, and I can do whatever I want now. Um, and so that's kind of this binding of the strong men, and that's going to play in here. Uh, the Lord, or excuse me, the kingdom of God, like this is a recurring theme in this, that God's kingdom is sort of invading the world in which we live, invading ancient Israel. Jesus is the kingdom of God come. And as he comes into the world, he is like doing what an invader would do. He's gathering up allies. He is uh, binding up the opposing army and the powers of the world. He is like changing things and claiming hearts and territory and everything else. So like Jesus is doing this invasion of our world and he has bound the Lord of the manor. Um, as it relates to these particular stories, the last one we talked about this, when he calms the storm, he does so in a manner that reflects, like it's reminiscent of ancient Jewish, like, exorcisms. So, like, ancient Jews, the way that they would exorcise demons, he uses the same phrasing, and it has a very, like, similar ring to it. Even the way he talks to the storm, he talks to the storm as though it's like a person with a personality, not like it's a force of nature. Um, and it's a really unusual construction. And so, understand, like, the calming of the storm story in the last bit here was like a preview of the casting out of the demon because he binds the storm like he's binding the devil, right? Um, and it's this whole, like, cool Lord of the Manor bound up, I can do what I want now sort of thing that's playing out in the text. And oftentimes, like, people who exegete this text, people who unpack it, they'll focus on all of these weird little spiritual ins and outs and speculate and all this other stuff. And in reality, like, maybe there's stuff to that, maybe there isn't. But, like, the real message here is that Jesus himself, the Son of God, sent to save us from our sins, has the authority and the power and the ability to bind up the evil and the broken and the wicked in this world in order to accomplish his objective, which is claiming us, like reclaiming our hearts, bringing us back from spiritual death and reuniting us with Christ. Like, like re, re uh, golly, what's the word? Um, reconciling us with God. Um, in terms of the delivery of the demon-possessed, like in the ancient world, they had this whole crazy collection of beliefs, and we're going to touch on a couple of those as we go, okay? Ancient exorcism, like there are ancient books written about ancient exorcism, and I'm pretty sure there's a TV show on the History Channel about it. Um, I made that up. All right, so the first big idea. We live in a fallen world. Everybody got it? If you think this world is wonderful and glorious and everything else, the only wonderful and glorious stuff that's happening is a remnant of what God designed into it, right? Like the good stuff, the beautiful, the the loving, the everything is a remnant. Everything else is kind of fallen and tainted by sin. Um, And part of the message of Mark is that Satan is in charge of this world, that he is the authority um, until Christ shows up. Uh, And so, like, we live in this fallen, unclean world that's hostile to God, and God's kingdom is invading it through the incarnation, through Jesus showing up. Uh, Mark 5, 1 to 2, I already read it. First off, Gerenesis is the, the weird place that he shows up. They actually have no idea exactly where this is. 
Um, it's like there's three cities in the area, and there's multiple spellings in the manuscripts and everything else. It's probably just a village that eventually disappeared right on the shore. So, like, they come to this place that's right on the shore, about five or six miles in, there's a little town that these herdsmen ran back to, and there's a whole agricultural center built up there. And it's sort of on the edge of what's called the Decaopolis, which is the Decaopolis. I love that word. Um, which is the uh, sort of Gentile area um, on the other side of Palestine, where the Gentiles all lived. There weren't very many Jewish people there. They sort of knew about Jewish folks. But, like, Jewish people wouldn't, like, generally go and hang out with Gentiles, and they wouldn't live in Gentile lands and everything else. Why? Because, as he calls this man, he says, listen, he's got an unclean spirit, and he says, unclean spirit, come out of him. Sometimes some translations render it evil spirit. The literal translation is unclean. And that's a big deal, because the man is a Gentile, therefore the Jews considered him unclean. Where is he hanging out? Well, he's hanging out in the, like, Gentile lands, which are unclean. And in particular, he lives in the tombs, which are really unclean. And then he's got a spirit in him that is like, like a demon, so super unclean, right? Like, everything about this situation screams dirty, right? Um, it screams not something you want to touch if you're a holy person or if you want to remain clean and untainted by the world, um, However, one of the things we see in Mark's gospel, and this is cool, um, one of the things we see is Jesus has this habit of going into unclean things and making them clean. It's like Chuck Norris, he jumps in water, he doesn't get wet, the water gets Chuck Norris, right? Like, Jesus is so holy and so pure and so clean that like Matthew, for example, Matthew was a tax collector and he ate dinner and... Matthew's house, we talked about this weeks ago in relation to that particular part of Mark. Um, to go into a tax collector's house was to become unclean. To even touch it was to become unclean. Tax collectors' food and money was considered unclean. And if you were a beggar and you received money from a tax collector, you had to give it back <laughs> because it was unclean. And so Jesus goes into Matthew's house and his presence makes it clean. And he makes Matthew clean because Matthew receives the gospel and is changed thoroughly. Um, in the same way, Jesus has come into, like, so we see this demonstration that the kingdom of God can invade an unclean man's life and an unclean place and make it holy and make it clean. In the same way, he enters the Decaopolis, Decaopolis. He enters this place that is unclean because it's all Gentiles and everything else, and there's like a herd of pigs. You know how much Jewish people like pigs? <laughs> Not at all. Um, there's a herd of pigs on the shore, and like, like it is just, just as, as broken and wrong as it can possibly be, and Jesus enters it, and by the command that he makes, like the words he says, he's able to make it clean. He's able to cast out what made it unclean. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? Um, it speaks to an authority. So that is the parallel that, we, that we're kind of drawn into by reading this. Um, the next big idea, Jesus exercises authority over the world. And his authority is so complete that he could not be controlled by anything. And instead is able to command things that he should not be able to command unless he has a lot of authority. Now, we're going to have to go back to the text a little bit here, and this is going to be in, uh, let me see, my next slide here, 3 to 9. So, chapter 5, verses 3 to 9. 
Um, I know it's exciting. Let's all squeal. Um, so he comes out there, and the first thing that the demon says to him um, is, oh, you're the son of the Most High God. Now, the phrase, the Most High God, is a phrase that is exclusively used by Gentiles and non-Jews. It is a way to talk about God by, used by somebody who is not Jewish. And so, like, this demon can't even, like, address him properly. He's got to address him from outside, right? Like, in an improper way, because he can't even take up the authority to speak the name of Jesus, right? But he calls him by this Gentile version of it. And ancient exorcists believed that names were super powerful. It is one of, though not by any stretch of the imagination, the complete idea behind do not use the name of the Lord in vain. Why is that? Because ancients believed if you knew the name of a god, their personal name, you could control them. And the idea with that commandment is don't even try. It ain't going to work, right? You ever have your kids do that? They come to you and they think they can control you because they're using something against you that they think is like a trump card? Um, my Abby once told me, uh, she came to me with a Bible. We were sitting in the office downstairs. And she's like, Dad, this book says you have to be nice to me and let me watch all the television I want. And I was like, really, that's in that book? <laughs> you sure? Um, the idea being, of course, she's like, I have a trump card. I can use the Bible to make Dad do what I want. And it didn't work, right? Because, um, because I, we don't own a copy of the message translation, and I'm sure television isn't message, mentioned in any other versions. I'm kidding. The message is all right. I'm just making a joke. Um, but... This demon uses the name or a title for Jesus, and the idea being, if you knew a demon's name, you could cast it out easier, and if the demon knew the exorcist's name, it was even harder to cast it out. So the demon comes to him, and he's like, oh, I know who you are, I'm going to use your name. Can't use his real name, can't use a proper name, has to use the Gentile name, and so he uses the wrong name, but he does it in an effort to control him. And Jesus' response is basically, yeah, whatever, what's your name? <laughs> just commands him, right? Why? Because he can. Because he's got that kind of authority. He says, well, what's your name? He says, legion, for we are many. There are two possibilities here. First off, understand, like, a Roman legion was about 6,000 guys, right? Or something like that. I, I have it in my notes. I wrote it down again, and I forgot it. So annoying. But it's several thousand guys. Right? And there's all kinds of weird attempts to like, oh, well, can people be possessed by multiple demons or how did this happen or whatever? The idea here is either that's his proper name because there's a ton of them or he's avoiding. He's like, ah, uh, I'm going to tell you we're called Legion because there's so many of us. That's it. That's the ticket. Um, and it might be the case that he's trying to avoid being controlled, right? Which a modern reader might draw out of that, right? Like, there's not a clear indication if legion is a proper name. Nowhere in the Bible or any ancient literature is legion ever used as a proper name. But it's a demon, so who the heck even knows? Um, but when he gives a name, he, he might have dodged. Or he might have said, there's a lot of us and you can't beat us. But, but whether he knows his name or not, Jesus can just still command him. He doesn't need to know his name in order to control him. He is God, right? Like we talked about this in relation to the last little section where they're in the boat and there's this huge storm. And what does he do? He says, stop it, calm down, be quiet, right? Which is this sort of exorcism phrase. Um, 
and, and we actually see Jesus use it in relation to a demon in chapter 1. Um, but having used this exorcism phrase to command the storm to stop, the storm stops. It's the same as in Genesis 1. We talked about this last week. In Genesis 1, where God uses commands to make things exist or to make the water go to one place or the land be in another or you know, clouds above or whatever. Like All of this stuff is done by command because God has that kind of authority. I can say, let there be chocolate eclairs. Nope, doesn't work for me. Why? I have that kind of authority, right? I might pretend I do, but I don't. Um, and so, like this name thing plays out, and, and Jesus basically ignores him, basically controls him anyway. The, the demon cannot influence him. And having cast out this demon, like one of the things that we're given in the course of this text, and it's important to draw out, right? Like this guy... He is so strong that when they put chains on him, he breaks them. They, they can't control him. They can't put him in the insane asylum. They can't do anything with him. Instead, he cuts himself and he screams at night. He lives in the tombs, which ancient, ancient period, like every ancient culture in the Near East and like all over the known world at the time, believed that demons lived in tombs. Hi, Abby. Oh, okay. We're not going to have slides anymore. Sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> um, they believed that demons lived in tombs. They believed that this is where demons abode. And so, like, all of this wildness that the guy has, it parallels the previous story. Why? Because the storm is so wild, it's threatening to sink the boat. No man even can control their boat in the middle of this mess in the same way as no man can control this guy. But who does control him in the end? Jesus does. And he does it by talking. Doesn't do a dance, doesn't, you know, draw circles on the ground, doesn't throw holy water, doesn't say, by the power of Christ, I can tell you, which would be a weird thing to say, I guess, in the context. Like, he just shows up and says, hey, who are you? Tell me your name. And then he kicks kicks this demon collection out of the man. Um, His wildness is like the storm. Uh, We're going to jump to 10 to 13. Like, ultimately, so I'm going to brush over this. Like, the idea here is the demons are like, hey, did you come to torture us? Did you come to this? Did you come to that? And they're like, let us go over there to those pigs. And they're sort of looking for a concession, like a way out. And tons of stuff has been speculated about this text. I'm, I'm saying we're not going to even hardly look at it, okay? Um, demons are generally associated with a location. It's an ancient belief where they would stay in one place or stay in one area or whatever. And this sort of reflects that, but it's not that big a deal. Um, casting them into the pigs isn't a win for them because the pigs immediately drown themselves, right? Um, They immediately destroy themselves. But he, it's important to catch, the big important idea here is pigs are the most unclean animal. You wouldn't touch, eat, whatever, a pig. When the prodigal son is like homeless, his lowest point is feeding pigs, right? Like it's considered low of the low for a Jew, right? So where does he cast the demon? Into the pigs. Why? Because they're low. If you're going to go somewhere, you're going to go into the garbage heap, right? And they destroy themselves. And ultimately, the argument is that the demons are destroyed along with him. Um, there's lots of stuff you can guess or not guess. There are people who say, oh, the pigs are scared and kill themselves. I don't know. We just don't know. It's all speculation. Um, but the important thing is when Christ cast them out, he cast them out to an unclean thing. Because Christ is making clean that which is unclean. And the unclean thing is not cast into the land, it's not cast into the tomb, it's cast into something else that was unclean. 
Um, the next big idea we're going to kind of touch on, so we've got that we live in this fallen, broken world, and that God is invading it through his incarnation. As the invader, as the kingdom representative, Christ exercised authority over everything. And finally, we have to make a choice, okay? And this is the important part of this sermon. Follow me here. Um, if you're going to fall asleep, like, wait. Uh, this is the important part. We all have decisions that we have to make when we encounter Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean that when we encounter Jesus, we're a little like Jill, standing on the edge of the clearing with the water in front of us, right? I, we know we need change. We know we're spiritually dead. We know our lives are broken or that we're enslaved to this sin or that sin or our bitterness is overtaking us or whatever. Like, we know we need something. But there's that lion. It's like, well, Jesus isn't a lion. I, I know everything tells me that Jesus loves me. This I know. And he's so wonderful. He never got mad. He was like Pollyanna like, and all this other stuff. In reality, Jesus was kind of a scary guy. Like, he didn't say to his disciples, hey, stay here, come with me. It doesn't matter. And the guy says, well, I, I want to go with you, but I'm going to wait until my dad dies, and then I'll follow me. He's like, nope, let the dead bury the dead. You either come with me now, or you're spiritually dead with him. Right? Like, the, the storm, when he calms the storm, the apostles are, or the disciples are afraid of the storm, and then they're really afraid of Jesus. Right? The first time we encounter people asking questions, who is this guy? It's like Gentiles who see him cast out, of a, cast out a demon, and they're like, uh, who is this guy? And they're scared. Jesus and like God himself should be terrifying to some degree. Why? Because he's God. Right? I, because he's God. Because he has bought me from my sin, and that is deeply comforting. That is deeply, like, like, it's glorious, and it's something to be joyful about. But I was going to be destroyed by him because of my sin. And we have to take that seriously. It's easy to look at sin. It's easy to look at mistakes. It's easy to look at God's calling on our lives and say, yeah, that doesn't really matter. I, uh, I know a gal, um, I don't know her real well. Uh, she doesn't live in this area, so I can use her as an example. Uh, but she uh, was horribly abused by her dad growing up. Right, um, And she is very open about her faith, and she's a person who has very deep faith, but she's also very open about the fact that she will never forgive him. Will not forgive him. You say, well, why? Because he has never asked me to forgive him, therefore I don't have to. And I look at that and I'm like, man, Jesus does talk about forgiving people whether or not they you know, say sorry. Jesus does ta- talk about grace. He does talk about, like, you know, the, the merciless servant, right? Like, he talks about these things, and you can argue whether or not repentance is necessary in a person that you're forgiving, but, like, we shouldn't ever be arrogant about that. Why? Because, because Jesus is scary. He's also wonderful. He's also our Savior. But we shouldn't ever treat God lightly. Because in treating God lightly, it's like... Do you ever watch, so I was in a meeting ages a few years ago, and another pastor pulls a handgun out of his bag, and they're discussing this holster he made. And he pulls this loaded gun out of the bag, and he's just sort of like talking with it. And he crossed my body with that, like, it was like a 45 Magnum or something. He crossed my body like five times, and finally I just took it away from him. I was like, dude, stop pointing that gun at me. Why? Because it's a gun! (laughs) You have to take it seriously. People who don't take guns seriously are scary. In the same way, 
Jesus is scary. In these texts, we see him exhibiting enormous power, right? We see him exhibiting, like, and exercising huge authority. If I walked out into Larry's field today and said, Rain, knock it off. Sun, come out. And it happened, Larry would take me seriously, right? Like, Eric's got an inroad with God. Um, if I walked out in the middle of summer and said, Rain, let's do it. And then starts raining on your crops, people would take me seriously. Why? Because God's listening to me. In the same way, like, because we don't see that power in very visible, very real, very terrifying sometimes ways, we oftentimes don't take it that seriously. We see Jesus as like the cuddly beanie baby lion, not the lion of Judah who, you know, is genuinely terrifying and doesn't promise not to eat us. Um, And so as we face this, as we face Christ, we can do what the people from this town did. First off, we can stand there before Jesus and we can say, yeah, I understand you want my whole life. I understand you want my whole heart. I understand you want me to confess my sins. I understand you want me to like submit to you in every area as a part of being bought out of slavery to sin. And I'm going to give you that, but I'm not going to give you this. This is embarrassing. I don't want anybody to know this. I'm going to keep it hidden. And I'm going to pretend you don't know. Or, you know, hey, Jesus, I know you want everything, but I'm not going to give you my marriage. I know you want everything, but I said that sinner's prayer, and now I don't really have to do anything else. I'm pretty much covered. Like, if we treat God that way, we're being very risky, and it's a very dangerous proposition. Um, Oftentimes, we do it unconsciously, but the people from the village, they come and they see the man sitting there, and they knew he was a wild storm on the lake just the day before, and now he's calm, and the boats are all on the water like it's nothing. Hey, maybe that's another parallel. Maybe it's on purpose. And Jesus, by a command, stopped it. And by a command, threw legion out of his own house, binding the strong man. He's got that kind of strength and that kind of authority. And like, they saw him and they're like, yeah, dude, you need to leave. Like, (laughs) you need to get out of here. I I can't deal with you. You're terrifying. Get the heck out of here. Um, There was a guy I went to church with years ago. He was a former policeman. uh, And he was like a baton instructor. And he was like... He was, he was short, sort of short and overweight and everything else, but, like, he was, he was tough as nails, right? And he, he knew weird, like, takedowns and moves. He could, like, do this thing to your arm that would just make you pee in your pants. It was the weirdest thing. Like, he was tough and he was scary. And I remember saying to his kid one day, I'm like, yeah, I like your dad, but I'm a little afraid of him. And they thought that was ridiculous. You know why? Anybody who could grab my arm and make me wet my pants, I'm scared of that guy, right? The same way I'm scared of a gun. Same way I'm scared of the stove and I don't want to put my hand on it. Like, I'm going to take that guy seriously. I'm not going to make fun of his wife, right? I'm not going to make fun of his weight. I'm not going to make fun of him. I'm going to treat him right. Why? Because because he could hurt me. Um, What is it? Mike Tyson, like the great philosopher Mike Tyson once said that the problem... The problem with the Internet is it's made people really comfortable, really comfortable saying all kinds of awful things and not risking getting punched in the mouth. Because people say stuff, they make fun of Mike Tyson all the time, they wouldn't do it in front of him. Right? You know why? He's going to kill you. Even like 70-year-old Mike Tyson is going to kill you. Right? Like, that's it. Um, We have to take God seriously. We have to take Christ seriously. 
the same way. Like, he calms the storm. He commands it. He binds it. He kicks this legion, literally an army of demons, out of this guy like it's nothing. And these guys, their response is, whoa, I'm scared of you. Get out of here. Should we be afraid of Christ? Yes. Should we take him seriously? Yes. Should we treat it as a little side project? Oh, yeah, you know, I believe in Jesus, therefore I'm saved. But I don't, like, read him or read the word or follow him. And I more or less say, well, Jesus tells us to love everyone no matter what and ignore everybody's sins and blah, 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 blah. I can't do that. Like, we can't go the other way. We have to take him seriously. The attitude here is contrasted strongly in the man. Now, watch this. The man is sitting there calmly. He's dressed. He is restored. He is freed. And when Jesus goes to get in the boat, he jumps in the boat with him, and he's like, I don't care where you're going. I'm going with you. You know why? Because the text literally says, he, like he asked, let me be with you. Now, that phrase is on purpose because it's the exact same phrase we see two chapters earlier when Jesus is calling his disciples. He's like, you guys are my people, and your job is to, number one, be with me. Number two, witness that I am the Son of God. And number three, bind demons, right? So we have this man who had his demons bound and then says, I want to follow you anywhere. I'll go to the grave following you. I'll walk away from everything following you because you freed me. This is the alternative. I guarantee you, this guy took Jesus seriously. How do I know that? Because he was filled with an army of demons and then he wasn't, right? Like you take that guy seriously. But on the other side of it, He also said, I don't care what you have, I want it. I will go anywhere with you. And so it is with us. We can choose to say, get away from me. Or by contrast, we can say, I want this and I will lose everything. I will risk everything. I remember when I quit drinking, I had to go around and confess a bunch of stuff. And I didn't quit drinking because I was trying to quit drinking. I I quit drinking because I woke up one morning and I said... I'm not right with Jesus, and I will do anything to be right with Jesus. And I did all kinds of crazy stuff. I told my wife about every lie I ever told her, and I was terrified. If you know my wife, I'm afraid of Jesus more than I'm afraid of her. That's quite a statement, right? Like, and I said, Lord, if I lose my marriage today, then I lose my marriage. I just want to be right with you. I don't care about anything else. I want to be right with you. If I have to, like, confess anything, I'll do it. If I have to serve anyone, if I have to love anyone, if I have to do anything, I will do it. Why? Because I just want to be right with you. And that is the opposite. The opposite. We terrify to God, but knowing that he is the only way to salvation. And that's the choice we make. When we read, love your neighbors yourself, we have to make that choice. You know why? Because like loving your neighbors yourself, terrifying prospect. It is. A lot of our neighbors are jerks. It's not even just your next door neighbor. It's people you know, right? It's people who screw up or wrong you or intentionally cheat you or betray you. You've got to love those people. Oh, my gosh, I don't want to do that. Well, I could just disobey Jesus. That would be okay, right? That should be more terrifying. Do we serve Jesus out of fear? No. We serve Jesus because he bought us out of our sin, because I am a brand-new man freed from slavery to my sin because of him. I serve him because I love him. But I'm also a little afraid of him. I take him seriously. Um, Fear can create distance or it can draw us close to Christ. 
It can make us aware of how desperately we need Him. And we have to make that choice. We've got to make it every day. We've got to make it constantly. We've got to make it more face of temptation. We've got we to make it all the time. The last thing here, by the way, there's another thing that the people of the town do. They are more concerned about this world and their property and their money and everything else than they are about the guy who Jesus delivered. Think about that a second. They're like, hey, you're going to ruin our economy. Get the heck out of here. Yeah, but he cast out these demons. Isn't it better not to have them? Don't care. My, my business is wrecked. Get out of here, Jesus. Right? And sometimes we can fall into that trap where this world and the comfort we have and the possessions we have and our business and our, our personal priorities and everything else are more important than Jesus. And actually, that's a little like the weeds in the soil, isn't it? Because what these guys are, what they're demonstrating is poor soil. They're demonstrating hard soil that the seeds can't penetrate. They're demonstrating concern for all kinds of things over the gospel, like the weeds in the garden, like, like all of this stuff. Like Mark has done a masterful job of writing a book where all of the different things play into it, and they play into it over and over again. So what do we do with all of this? Like, How do I handle this? Because it's a weird story, and there's a lot going on. And it's hot in here, and I started late, and the sermon's already long, and everything else. Like, what do I do with this? Well, I have to take it seriously, first off. I have to realize that Christ has authority over this world, over everything in it, over my salvation, over my eternity, over my heart, over my kids, over my family. I might think I will protect this. I will protect that by taking all of these precautions. And you know what? If Christ isn't protecting them, nothing. There's nothing I can do. I cannot carry a gun big enough to be stronger than Christ stepping in on my behalf. Does that mean I should never go armed? I I don't think so. But it does mean that if I depend on my own power, if I depend on my own strength, if I fail to depend on Christ, I will create disaster in my life. The second thing we have to do is submit And we have to submit not just in the way of, like, my dog is afraid to steal food off my plate because he knows that he's in trouble if he does it, right? Because that's one kind of submission. But he'll do it if I'm not in the room or he thinks he can get away with it. There's another kind of submission. That kind of submission is what we're going to celebrate with the Lord's Supper today. Um, It is the kind of submission that says, I will consume Christ into my heart and into my very soul and fill myself up with him and everything, everything that I am will become him. I will die to my old self and be nourished and brought to new life in Christ. I will go to the side of the river, fear or no, and I will drink the living water that will bring me new life, that will take away my thirst for eternity, my thirst to know my creator, and I will do it even though... It's terrifying. And so as we take the elements today, I'm going to call my guys forward. I really hope I have guys. Um, (laughs) As I call my guys forward, as you take the bread, as you take the, the, the fruit of the vine, understand these are just physical elements, but they represent a truth happening in your soul. And that truth in your soul is, I'm consuming Christ. I am filled with him. And I'll be brand new, made brand new through him. And on the night that Christ was betrayed, he took his bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this and eat it. 
This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a person who has come to the water and drank, afraid of Christ, afraid of God, like afraid of the power and the authority and everything else, but still loving the mercy and the attention and the grace that he has bestowed upon us, take the body and consume it. Be filled with Christ, the free gift of grace, of forgiveness and new life. And do I have a piano player? Should I sing?